Welcome to BuildCast, where we delve into the backstories of experts and other players in the built environment to reveal their journey and how they got built. Join us in our conversation to learn from their life experiences, to be the catalyst for innovation, and to make sustainable building mainstream building. Now here is your host and the principal thinker at Build Tank Inc., Robbie Schwartz. I think you will enjoy listening to this BuildCast with Kyle Biega and West McAvoy of the University of Colorado in Boulder, who are the team leaders of the CU Solar Decathlon Building Challenge. Teams competing in the Solar Decathlon Builder Challenge work during a two-year period to design, build, and operate their homes, culminating in a 2023 with the Solar Decathlon Competition event that is held at the National Renewable Energy Lab in Golden, Colorado. CU Boulder teams have won the last few builder challenges, so I was excited to learn more about the competition and hear from Kyle and Wes what the team is planning this go-around. What we know is that teams will compete to earn points by operating their houses successfully and by showcasing the excellence of their solutions to industry expert jurors in the 10 focus areas that include architecture, engineering, market analysis, durability and resilience, embodied environmental impact, integrated performance, occupant experience, comfort and environmental quality, energy performance, and overall presentation. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Hi, this is Robbie Schwartz with Build Tank here at the BuildCast. We have Kyle Biega and Wes McAvoy from the University of Colorado Solar Decathlon. They are both team leaders of the Solar Decathlon for the 2022 uh, Decathlon. And we're here to learn more about them, the Solar Decathlon, and uh, basically what they're learning uh, and know what they can teach us about it. So welcome, gentlemen. I appreciate you being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having us, Robbie. Really appreciate it. Yeah, so, thanks. Glad to be here. Perfect, perfect. Um, Wes, why don't you start? Why don't you give us a, a little background about um, how you got to see you, uh, what you're studying, and how uh, you got interested in the solar decathlon in the first place? Totally, yeah. Um, so my name is Wes McAvoy. I'm a sophomore studying computer engineering here at CU, and I also have a minor in engineering entrepreneurship. Um, I'm actually from Colorado, so I grew up in Colorado Springs, about two hours south of here. And I applied to a ton of colleges all over the country, and ultimately what brought me to CU was kind of its focus on sustainability and then also its proximity to the outdoors. Um, what ultimately pushed me to choose computer engineering was um, I've always been super interested in renewable energy. So I thought that my career might one day be um, in solar or wind or just on the front line of renewable research, anything like that. And then I'm also super interested in software. So autonomous vehicles, algorithms, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then along those same lines, it was my interest in renewable energy that brought me to Solar Decathlon. And little did I know when I first started that it was so architecturally oriented and uh, construction oriented, but it's been a blast learning all that stuff at the same time. That's really cool. Um, Kyle, how about you? Yeah, so my background's a little different than Wes's. Um, so I'm actually, at CU Boulder for uh, the graduate program in architectural engineering. And so my undergrad was in mechanical engineering and after a few years of work, um, was looking for a career change. Um, definitely wanted to get into sustainable buildings um, and, and for myself personally, more, more interested in uh, wanting to get into residential design and build. And, and similar to West, though, um, you know, as I was looking for programs across the country, um, you know, this architectural engineering program was really attractive for me because it's still engineering based, um, but we get a lot of focus on the architectural design components as well. And so it's a nice comprehensive program um, that was a really, really attractive uh, for me. And once I got here, found out about solar decathlon and 
it really aligned with a lot of my professional goals and, and where I want to go in, in my career. And so I figured this would be a great opportunity to, uh, to start another team here. Great. Um, why don't you, can one of you describe what the solar decathlon is? Yeah, totally. Um, so essentially what solar decathlon is, is it's a contest put on by the U S department of energy and it takes place over the course of two years. Um, and there's teams from around the world. It's an international competition. Most of them are associated with universities, but the goal of this sort of project is to design and build a net zero energy home over the course of those two years. So typically the first year spent, um, designing, going through the design process, working out all those details. And then the second half of the year spent actually building the home. So the homes do actually end up getting built. Um, and in the past, everyone kind of brought their homes to Washington, D.C. and set them up on the mall. Um, and that's where the competition took place. But they've since changed that. And now you can build wherever you want. So all over the world. And then what they do is the National Renewable Energy Laboratory actually judges the competition. Um, so for us, that's actually 30 minutes down the road in Golden. Um, but there's 10 measured contests. So within your home, they look at stuff like overall presentation, performance. Um, they look at your envelope, uh, tons of stuff. They look at your solar, how well you designed your solar array. Um, so that's where the word decathlon comes from, is there's actually 10 measured contests within the actual home that's built by each of the teams. Uh, so that's a pretty high level overview of the competition. Um, yeah. It's it's a pretty big competition. I mean, it takes place over two years. There's a lot of details to work out. and um, But it, it helps to think of it in two phases, design and build. Yeah, perfect. And you're in your first year or your second year of this this house? We're in the first years, so okay. we're we're about just over seven months in. April twenty twenty three is when okay. it'll wrap up. Great, and CU has had uh, some very good success uh, with with this competition. Correct. Yeah, yeah, totally. So CU's participated three times in the past, um, actually winning the entire competition two times. And actually, we just won last year in 2021. Um, so our team's looking to repeat that same success and hopefully bring home another trophy this next year. Yeah, the pressure's on uh, for you guys. Totally. So, so and, we'll actually up the up those numbers. Uh, it's actually four times in the past, winning three times. So we're going for for the fourth fourth championship here. That's great. Um, and so you both are leaders of the team. Uh, what kind of responsibilities does that uh, mean for you, for the both of you? Yeah, yeah. So we're both co-leads of the team here at CU. Um, and we kind of share some responsibility and then other stuff we kind of divide and conquer. So as far as sort of club logistics go, because we are technically a club within the university, um, we, we refer to ourselves as a team, but we're essentially a club. Um, so we meet once a week and we'll alternate every week, setting up meeting plans, putting slides together, materials for the meeting, um, reaching out to speakers to bring in, stuff like that. And then as far as actually managing the team goes, Kyle tends to oversee the more architectural and structural side of things while I'll handle the more technical stuff like the solar and then all the integrated systems of the home. So we have five sub teams and we kind of each oversee some of them um with the fifth team uh being overseen by both of us which is hvac because it kind of crosses into both of our respective disciplines but um yeah that, that's a pretty general breakdown of what each of us do um what are yeah, the if you want to add to that kyle yeah maybe yeah, kyle, the... you could tell us what the five teams are yeah so the five teams that we've got are architecture structural Mechanical, so that includes both HVAC and plumbing. Got an electrical, solar, and lighting team, so they, they have quite a, a wide range of responsibility. And then we have an integrated systems team, so they're they're mostly responsible for the cohesiveness of, of the other four teams, making sure all of the systems are working together, finding out where we can try and automate anything, and then also kind of being the leaders in terms of 
making sure that this home <clears throat> is set up for success in terms of the competition and making sure that, like I said, everything kind of works together as one single unit. Yeah. Is there a faculty supervisor or person that uh, is helping you in on the faculty side? Yes, we actually have a faculty lead and a faculty advisor. Um, our faculty lead is Jay Earhart. He's a professor in architectural engineering here at CU. And then our faculty advisor is actually last year's faculty lead. Uh, it's Jennifer Schlib. Schlib, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, also a professor of architectural engineering within CU. Um, so me and Kyle meet with them once a week and they offer us guidance, advice. If we need resources, we'll reach out to them and they'll point us in the right direction. And then they'll come by every now and then to just see how the entire team's doing. Um, and they teach a lot of our team members um, daily in classes. So um, as a whole, our team is pretty familiar and friendly with them and they're a huge help to us. And how many people are on the team? So we've got about 20 regularly attending members um, and that number can fluctuate too. Some meetings will have upwards of that and then sometimes only have 10 people. Um, but we generally say about 20 people who are, I guess, on the team, full-time members that we see pretty regularly throughout the year. Um, but we're expecting some turnover um, because we'll, we'll have seniors graduate. Some people might not return at the beginning of next semester, stuff like that. But generally, I mean, we have a pretty solid core of students who are really interested and passionate about the project and keep coming back. And it is a lot of fun. It's a lot of work, but we also have a lot of fun. So yeah, um, yeah that, that keeps those regularly attending members coming back. So if you are a senior, uh, do you, does that mean you have to be a full-time student to be part of the team? Uh, if you graduated this year, you're going to miss out on the second year. Uh, right. There's no way. Yeah, so that's, no way that's a good part. point. Um, so we actually have some grad students, I should mention. About 25% of our team is actually made up of graduate students. So if you graduate, that doesn't mean you can't be a part of the team anymore. However, I do think there's a regulation within the solar Athlon contest rules that says that all students must be enrolled at the university. So there is that one catch. Um, so if you graduate from CU and go on to your job or go to another school for grad school, then I think you might be ineligible to be a part of the team. But um, I know we have at least one senior this year who's graduating, but staying at CU for a graduate program. So he'll be back for another year despite finishing his undergraduate. That's great. That's great. I, I, I'm guessing that it's uh, looks pretty good on a resume to take, to, you know, to carry through this project to fruition. Yeah, definitely. I think it's definitely a resume booster for a lot of people, especially those architectural engineers. Um, just as I mentioned earlier, this project is just really architecturally intensive and we do a lot of legitimate calculations and, we're working directly with professional engineers and in industry. So you really kind of dip your toes in what you're gonna be doing once you once you leave college and actually break into industry and have your first job. So in that sense, it's it's definitely a resume booster. And then assuming we win, it's probably even more of a energy booster. You have a little accolade to throw on your resume. For sure, for sure. So yeah, and I, I go ahead. Yeah, and I, I would just add on to, you know, just the other great thing about being on a team like this and a project like this are the connections that we make and the networking that we do just to get through this project. I mean, the amount of professionals, engineers, architects, building science consultants that we've met and, and folks that have been just willing to help us um, has just been like really inspiring and I can I can certainly say in the past seven months of being involved in this project, I've made more connections than I did in the whole four years of my undergrad. Like this, it, it is like Wes said, a very like intensive project, um, but very rewarding, and and you meet a lot a lot of people doing it. Very very good. Um, I think it's a good segue to start talking about the house uh, and the project specifically. Um, do you think 
describing well why don't why don't we start by describing uh since you're not going to be building it in washington i'm guessing that you've chosen the site uh where you're going to build the that's house. correct yep so let's start with yep. that where is that so i'll just go ahead and give kind of a basic rundown of the project so for this chapter of the build challenge we've partnered with Flatirons habitat for humanity which is kind of a local branch of uh the national habitat for humanity um and there's a project in north boulder it's called the ponderosa mobile home revitalization project so there's a mobile home park that unfortunately was involved in the 2013 boulder flooding and then in 2017 it was actually annexed by the city so now the city owns kind of all that property um, and now they're kind of undergoing a project to slowly switch it over to affordable housing and just this year actually is phase one of um, the first buildings are going up so what we've done with habitat for humanity is they've actually kind of given us one of those homes that's going to go up this year um, and they had a base case plan for it and everything they had architectural drawings but what we've been doing the past six months is making modifications to this design in order to make it eligible for the contest and just kind of make our own design modifications that'll make it more efficient, sustainable, and affordable. So um, that's that's where we started this year. Um, but yeah, to answer your question about where the site actually is, it's on Broadway and Boulder as you drive north right before you run back into 36. So it's it's local. It's about 10 minutes from CU's campus. Um, and it's really cool to be building local because last year's team, they built a house for a couple up in Fraser which is a good two plus hours from here. And it's pretty cool to actually be designing for a family in the community. Um, we don't actually know who's gonna be living in the house yet at this point, um, but we're all just super excited that what we're doing is gonna be felt right here in Boulder rather than you know, miles away. Very cool. And the, um, does, does the lot have good solar orientation? Were you able to choose the lot it or? It does actually. So we had a little bit of choice. Um, so this year there's a triplex going up. There's what, what they're calling a single family home, which is basically just a ground level two bedroom home. And then we actually ended up proceeding with, um, it's called the carriage home. So essentially what it is, is it's a two bedroom home, but it's over a garage. So it's kind of like an ADU. Um, and then we are just fortunate enough, the original plans had a south facing roof and everything, um, only one pitch of roof. So they really made our lives easy for solar in that way. We didn't really have to change much as far as angle of the roof goes or orientation. It's interesting that it's uh, that they're allowing a carriage house there because most of Boulder, the city of Boulder, my understanding is that they don't uh, allow ADUs right now. Have you heard that? Yeah, yeah. Kyle could talk. Kyle could talk more to that than I could. But uh, we d we did some market research back in the fall, and we're we're really thinking that the popularity and demand for these types of homes is going to be increasing, both yeah. in Boulder and kind of up and down the Front Range as people are looking to kind of make some secondary income by renting that extra unit out or whatever it may be. We think it's we think they might explode in the next decade or so. Yeah. Yeah, and and one of the main reasons for for proceeding with this type of construction, the the carriage home with the garage on the bottom, um, is that you know this community has got about sixty um, owners slash families. You know, there's currently sixty um, mobile homes there right now, and and parking is a real big issue. There's nowhere for people to park. And so that was one of the biggest requirements from the city of Boulder is that we need to provide some better off street parking. And so this was one of the solutions um, to be able to still provide, you know, living space, but um, add some off street parking to the community. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting uh, to see if they start allowing these auxiliary dwelling units uh, in other parts of the city. Because, uh, like I said, uh, they they haven't been for for years now, and it's it's been interesting because it you're right, uh, Wes. It's it's really uh, boomed in in the Denver other parts of the Denver metro uh, area here. So um, maybe let's start with the structure itself. So is it, is it a 
typical uh, stick framed uh, structure that you're going to be doing? Yeah, so I, I can I can take that one. So <clears throat> we are trying to, um, you know, go with a model that can be repeatable, you know, as something going forward, because we are working under, you know, the habitat model where this home is going to be built with volunteers and, and quite honestly, probably a lot of student volunteers who don't have a lot of um, construction yeah. experience. And so we are we are proceeding with a, a stick frame construction. You know, we evaluated a lot of different types of system, including like a prefab um, wall panel system. And, and in fact, our team last year did that and it was extremely successful. Um, but just trying to look at what the model it, what model is best with habitat and using volunteers and there's a lot of experience out there with people who know how to stick frame and so we wanted to stick with that um the one difference is that you know the design does focus on a very robust envelope so we're going to have a 12 inch double stud wall assembly um with with cellulose insulation in between and so that was one of the changes that we've made from, you know, these base case designs that Habitat in the city initially um, had. And that was to really focus on the envelope, um, create a nice, robust, tight envelope so that we can reduce the amount of energy needed to actually power the home. So is, is the double wall framed with two by fours or two by six? It's it's actually because we're in a, a very specific high wind zone in Boulder. Um, structurally, we needed to have two by sixes um, and sheathing on the exterior for for shear. Um, we tried we tried to look at alternatives in terms of reducing amount of material with sheathing, but it it just all came down to the the structural side and. With the wind loads, um, you know, we, we ended up having to proceed with a two by six and and sheathing on the exterior, but the interior stud wall is is a two by four. And the gap between the two, like it it's it's a three inch gap between the two. So so you've got a five and a half inch two by six, a three inch gap, and then a three and a half inch two by four. Now the actual whole wall assembly is is sixteen inches by the time you include service cavity, um, exterior, interior finish, and, and a rain screen. So 12 inch, you know, structural wall, and then a 16 inch total wall assembly. So you're, are you sheathing the interior wall and then doing a service cavity? Uh, so the way that it actually works is, so on the, on the inside of the interior stud wall, uh, you run horizontal battens and you can just use two by two buys. Um, that'll give us a inch and a half, uh, service cavity to be able to run, you know, any sort of electrical or conduit and then your interior finish, whether it's drywall, uh, chiplap, plaster, whatever you, you decide to, to go forward with, which we're still making that decision now, um, goes on top of those two buys. Um, and the whole intent of that is so that we don't penetrate the interior air barrier. Yeah. Very, very cool. So the, the base garage, did it, did it expand or are you, were you just okay with losing some interior uh, square footage? Yeah. So that was, uh, <laughs> that was a, one of the biggest challenges on this project is that we're working with a very tight lot. Um, the the way that this development was approved has kind of been approved in in phases and so the foundations had already been approved so the lot lot splitting sizing and the foundation size the footprint of the building have all been approved by the city and so there wasn't a whole lot of desire or really i think ability to try and change the footprint um, so we did a lot of work in terms of trying to move around the interior to maximize it as much as possible. So what we ended up doing in terms of coming up for a solution with this is that we looked at our, our fire separations. That was really the, the key, um, variable in terms of dictating, you know, how thick of an envelope can we make? 
we found that there was actually a little bit of wiggle room in the, the fire spacing. And so what we're actually doing with this home is the second floor will actually cantilever over the, the first floor. So that's how we were able to grab some additional width for the envelope um, because we didn't have any room to increase the envelope in, inwards. Um, this home, um, again, you know, from the, the city of Boulder wanted to have two bedrooms and it's it's a very small lot size. So living space is, is right at or just shy of like 700 square feet. And so with affordable, there's affordable uh, living standards that we need to abide by. And we were already at like the bare minimum for square footage um, when looking at bedroom sizes. And so the only solution was build outwards instead of inwards. And so so that's what we were able to do is um, basically cantilever the second floor over the garage. Um, and that's how we were able to buy a little bit of extra room uh, to increase the envelope. Okay. So the what you're referring to as the second floor over the garage would be really the floor the floor system is the ceiling of the garage right that's right yeah so right on the yeah the the ceiling of the garage is the floor of the second floor and those are going to be uh 14 inch tjis okay and are you gonna uh, dense pack those as well yep yeah we we've evaluated a lot of different insulation materials but in terms of um, availability, cost, and the other key variable that's very important to our team in terms of materials is what can we use that's low embodied carbon. And from the combination of those three, you know, cellulose really was the king when you're looking at those three variables. And so we looked at, at hempcrete, we looked at straw bale, we looked at a bunch of different stuff, but ultimately came down to uh, cellulose. Because it's just it, it's a lot wider used. It'll be a lot easier to to find contractors who can do it as well. Mm -hmm. And why did you choose uh, cellulose versus a blown fiberglass? Uh, that comes down to the embodied carbon. So I mean, when you look at the base of cellulose, I mean it's essentially recycled paper. It's it's wood based. Um, so looking at the carbon content of the materials, fiberglass has a lot more intensive manufacture process. And so, um, you know, we wanted to focus not only on the operational carbon of the home in terms of, you know, everyone talks about uh, energy efficiency of a home, but we really wanted to put a strong emphasis on the upfront embodied carbon of the materials that we're choosing. So we've been very selective in what, what materials we're using. Um, and, and that was kind of a CU Boulder's always kind of had an emphasis on in terms of the sustainability uh, topic in terms of embodied carbon. This year for the solar decathlon is the first year that they've actually included as one of the 10 contests is evaluation of a life cycle assessment. So looking at the embodied carbon of the materials that you chose. So um, we were already planning on doing doing that, um, and it just kind of aligned, and we said, "Well, that that'll be great. That'll be a good contest for us to to go towards." Yeah. And and great experience because that uh, calculation, that thought process is is becoming more of the norm, uh, very slowly, but it's still becoming more uh, of the norm of what people are thinking about uh, these days. So that that's interesting. So you'll have probably have some plumbing in that floor system. Are you worried about uh, freezing plumbing at all? No, so um, the garage is gonna be uninsulated except for the mechanical room. Um, so the mechanical room is where we're gonna have, uh, so two, two plumbing systems. So we'll have our heat pump hot water heater down there and we'll also have because it's affordable housing we need to have fire suppression so our our inlet water for um for the fire sprinklers will be coming up in that closet as well um so we've got <laughs> i won't get into it now because i think it'll come up later but we've got a few options in terms of how do we keep that um closet warm without freezing in the winter i mean it doesn't need to be huge as long as we can keep it above 40 degrees we'll be fine yeah. um the base case design that habitat was just going to include a little electric resistance heater in there 
but I think we've got some opportunity um, to use either some waste heat or some passive solar to, to basically keep that room warm enough. Interesting, yeah. So um, let's finish with the structure uh, before we go to the mechanicals. So the this roof is a truss system with a ventilated attic or a raftered system? Yeah, and so we, that was one of the big changes we made from the, the base case designs is, you know, looking at the size of the home, we really wanted to try and maximize any sort of interior space and any sort of volume that we could. So we did move away from a truss system to a rafter system. Um, the main reason being is, you know, we've got a lot of vertical space that was being unused. And with a small home like this, where a lot of the interior square footage needs to be eaten up because we have two bedrooms, um, we wanted to try and find some way to really increase um, storage space for, for the future occupant. And so what we did is we moved to a rafter system, um, which allows us to include a loft into this, um, uh, into this house. And so that loft, you know, that obviously be, can be up to the, the user on how they want to use that. But at a minimum, it'll, it'll provide, um, I think it's another 15 by 10, you know, 150 square feet of, of storage at a minimum that, that will add to the house that, that wasn't there before. Um, and, and there was, <clears throat> so that, that was the main reason for moving to the rafter system, but. In, in all honesty, with all the supply chain issues going on in the building industry right now, trusses are on like a eight month lead time anyways. And so rafters were just another option that were much more readily available. Yeah. And it's a shed roof? Shed roof. Yeah. It's a three, three by 12 sloped shed roof. Okay. And uh, the depth of the rafter is what? We've got 14 inch uh, TJIs, um, so that should be able to get us uh, above, it should get us around a R50 roof. Um, Boulder's got pretty aggressive uh, requirements, uh, energy conservation requirements anyways. I think the bare minimum for Boulder is R49, which is way more aggressive than a lot of other jurisdictions. So we'll at least be able to get an R50. We're still evaluating whether we want to add some gussets to those rafters to increase insulation. But looking at our energy modeling, um, the majority of our heat loss is going to be through the walls because we've got a vaulted ceiling, the, the greatest surface area is the walls. So adding insulation to the roof on this particular project doesn't really look like it's going to buy us a whole lot. So we're really focusing the energy on the wall assembly. And if, if you considered adding insulation to the roof, would you, uh, I'm not exactly clear what you're saying. Would you put that continuous insulation on the outside above the sheathing or something like that? Yeah. So the hard thing with continuous insulation, um, you know, there are a few products and if, if anybody else knows any, please let me know. Um, you know, we're trying to stay away from any sort of foam. So, you know, we don't want to stay, we don't want to use like rigid foam insulation. Now there are some, some fiber board products out there you know, that 475 cells um, that we could potentially use. Um, and and with our assembly, uh, we wouldn't put it on the exterior anyways. We, we would just put it on the interior um, because our the way that our envelope barrier works, we've got a nice continuous uh, insulation and air barrier that goes all the way around the vaulted ceiling floor wall assembly. And so we could actually just put, if we found a nice product, rigid board product that we liked, we could put it on the interior underneath the rafters. But I, I like I said, I, I don't think we'll, we're going to end up needing to do that. We should be fine with just the blown in. Okay. And then last, uh, I guess we won't really talk about doors, but how about the windows? What kind of windows did you use? Yep. So we'll be, um, you know, we, we did look at a bunch of different companies, but um, it was nice having Alpin so close by in, in Louisville. So they offer high performance windows, so we'll be we'll be moving forward with a triple pane window assembly. Great, and I assume the door is a pretty standard insulated door. That's right. And 
to to enter the unit are you entering from the exterior or through the garage like a like a entryway or i guess off the deck yep so the the stairs actually so so you the owner would come home park in their garage walk out the garage and then it's a ex exterior stairway on the side of the house that leads up to a porch and on that porch is the front door okay with with a mechanical room insulated i guess would be actually part of the square footage of the unit uh, in the garage right yeah so the garage has the the, the garage is a little bigger than a, a typical two-car garage because at the end of the garage you've got the mechanical room and then you've also got two storage closets as well okay okay so let's talk about mechanicals. You were saying a heat pump water heater, and you're, I'm guessing you're, you're mentioning a, uh, some concern. I'm thinking of the heat pump water heater making that room colder and how you could supplement that. Yeah, so maybe, maybe we'll just go ahead and, and jump into that and I'll, I'll start and then I'll let Wes uh, pitch in, but, uh, one of the I'm, I'm going to take a step back actually so when you look at the design of our our house you know one of the, the key design elements is around resilience of the home and so when we talk about resilience we mean resilience in terms of against uh, flooding catastrophes but we also mean resilience in terms of you know future power outages you know as we look the last few few years whether it's from storms, fires, whatever it may be, power outages seem to be occurring more and more often. And so <clears throat> we wanted to try and find an innovative solution for energy storage for this home um, to allow the user to still be able to, to have a nice, comfortable home in the event of a power outage. And so you, you know, a lot of people talk about home batteries um, and, and, and maybe I won't get into that too much, but we ended up finding a solution in a, a local company here in Lyons called Electric Green that actually offers a uh, kind of a plug and play residential hydrogen storage system. Um, and so what that allows us to do, and I'll, I'll get back to the topic of the mechanical room in a second, but what that allows us to do is use our solar panels to generate hydrogen through an elect electrolyzer, store that hydrogen on site in tanks, and then either at night, um, you can pull that hydrogen to power the home at night, or you can reserve some tanks um, for in the event of a power outage and still be able to, to power and run your house. Now, the reason I, uh, I'll, I'll let Wes talk more about the hydrogen system, but the reason I wanted to just bring that up now is with that equipment, with the electrolyzer and the fuel cell that has waste heat associated with it. And so we're looking at how do we capture that waste heat to heat that mechanical room, which would also be great to feed the heat pump hot water heater to make it more efficient. Yeah, interesting. Wes, do you want to go on from there? Yeah, I, I was just about to jump in and add something. Um, so along with what Kyle just said about the batteries, um, basically when I explain the hydrogen system to people, what I tell them is it's essentially just a $50,000 battery. Like it, it's a super complicated system and we could have a whole podcast series on that alone if we wanted. Um, but one thing we are looking at is um, all the batteries these days, lithium ion, um, back a decade ago, it used to be lead acid. Um, they're just not, they're not super easy to recycle. Um, and even now in the last decade, they've gotten extremely more efficient than they were, um, more energy per volume, more energy per weight. But the thing is like, they're not easily recycled. And that kind of goes back to our embodied carbon and just overall sustainability. So we, we wanted to see if we could kind of eliminate that from, from our solar configuration and hydrogen allows us to do that. And then along with the power outages Kyle mentioned, if you're if you're in a meeting with the traditional solar configuration and you just have panels, battery, and then your net meter, 
if the power goes out and the power company's working on the power lines, you can't pull energy off your roof anymore. So you can't use those panels while that's happening. But with this system, the hydrogen system has an onboard inverter that stands in between the grid and your panels. So assuming the grid goes down, you're essentially off grid now. The grid's off, you can't pull from it, but you can still pull from your panels and send to your house. You can still produce hydrogen. Um, so that's where the system becomes really cool is when when the power companies go down, a power line goes down because of a, because of a fire, or high winds, you're, you don't really have much to worry about unless it's off for half a month or more. Um, but it just introduces a really cool resilience factor into this design. What's the delta T between the hydrogen system and a traditional battery system? Do you have an idea? Delta Delta T uh, meaning price. price. Oh, price. gotcha. Yeah, so it is significant. Um, the hydrogen system is pretty expensive, and traditional batteries are a lot, a lot more cheaper. Um, but what we're trying to do with this system is show that hey, this is a new technology. It's not nearly as cheap as batteries, but there's some really cool implications that go along with it. And if we continue to develop it as we move on, like this could become super feasible for everyone to have in their home. Um, so although it's super expensive now, um, it I mean, it's going to be it's going to make sense here pretty soon. And I'll also add that it's life cycle kind of starts to take care of itself, right? Like it'll pay for itself eventually. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think the yeah. price price will come down at some point, and I think that resilience factor is is really key. Uh, you think about what happened in Texas uh, a little while ago, and you know those houses, even if they had solar and they had good envelopes, um, you know how long can you go uh, without actual power and if, unless you have batteries you're you're kind of screwed so i th i think it's a great uh, great idea great thing to be thinking about yeah and the other thing i'll add and you know certainly the the cost was a main consideration when we were going through this design process but but ultimately um you know we wanted to be able to to me that's the whole point of the solar decathlon is you look at prices of of solar panels when the solar decathlon initially started back in 2002 and and costs have come down maybe what i think like 70 to 80 percent on on solar panels since then and so tech as technology improves and becomes more available yes costs come down but there's additional factors in there as well where you know home batteries and, and i'm not a battery like i don't knock batteries at all like i don't have anything against them but you know they do they do degrade over time. They also don't don't perform very well in very cold or very hot temperatures. Hydrogen is is completely um, res resilient to that, so it it has the same performance. It doesn't degrade. Um, there's minor minor maintenance that needs to be done on an annual basis for the fuel cell and the electrolyzer. Um, so yeah, it's it's a high upfront cost right now, but you start to look at all the money that's being shoved into hydrogen development, either from the U.S. Department of Energy or through Biden's infrastructure plan, um, there's a lot of incentives coming down the pipeline. So as a team, we felt like, yeah, maybe we may we may be a little early in terms of you know upfront cost, um, but we wanted to take the initiative of, of really trying to share this technology. How big are the tanks? For the hydrogen storage uh, as far as the actual measurements of the tank goes i'm unsure but kyle do you happen to know off the top of your head yeah, yeah so they're definitely bigger than like a um like a scuba tank so they're they're about i think they're about eight feet long and like 18 inches in diameter so they're they're fairly decent for for this house we're planning on using three tanks and we can kind of stack those horizontally on top of each other and basically just push them, um, find a nice little shed to push them up against, against the house. Um, but each tank conservatively, um, can, can deliver about, I think it's like 10 kilowatt hours, which would be plenty enough to, 
to power this home on three full tanks, you know, at, at least three days. So, um, hydrogen has a huge energy density associated with it. Um, so per gram, you, it, it's a lot more, um, energy dense than looking at, uh, like gasoline or propane or natural gas or anything like that. Okay, well, let's uh, move on to the heating and cooling. What are you choosing for that system? Yeah, so um, for heating and cooling, um, again, we kind of been back and forth, but we've you know finally come to a, a decision. And, and we wanted, we really were looking forward to moving with a purely hydronic heating and cooling system. So radiant heating and radiant cooling. Um, but the cost uh, just wasn't there in terms of trying to find something that we can fit into an affordable house. Um, so we've decided to, to move forward with a, a fairly typical um, residential mini split heat pump system. So um, we'll have a ERV for ventilation and then we'll have a ducted mini split system. The house is so small and we've got such a tight envelope, you know, the heating load is, I think it's like, 8,000 BTUs. It's really small. So it, we were basically going to get the smallest mini split, one ton mini split system that you can get. Uh, and we're, we're, we've partnered with um, Mitsubishi heat pumps. Great. Have you chosen your, you're going to use the ERV or an HRV? ERV, but that we've just kind of gotten into that discussion. Um, so that hasn't been sorted through yet. And you, you mentioned earlier that you're modeling, doing some energy models. What, what kind of software are you using? We've used multiple. <laughs> uh, we started with Bioct and we've also used um, Open Studio. Um, and then we've also, through Solar Decathlon, they give us free access to like HERS rating. So we've used um, RIM rate for um, like HERS ratings. And then we also have um, an individual on our team who's familiar with Trace 3D. And that was, well, that's more, mainly more of like a commercial system software. Um, it's nice because it can give us, particularly when we're looking, having a big focus on like our peak electric loads, it can help spit out some good schedules in terms of estimated peak loads. And so we've kind of used a combination of all four of those, depending on what analysis and data we're looking for. Right. Um, anything else you want to tell us about the specifics of the project? I guess um, it's going to have solar. Is, it, are there, is there any uh, passive solar um, element? So we had talk early on in the project of doing a solar tram wall, um, obviously on the south side of the home. Um, but since we've introduced hydrogen and other components of the project, it just hasn't been as practical. Um, but, but I will talk about the idea briefly, just cause it was a pretty cool solution. I think we came up with, we were going to use the warm air from the Tron wall to preheat the air that would be moved through the home. And that would kind of increase the efficiencies of the heat pumps. Uh, so that was one of our original ideas. Originally, we actually looked into only using a tron wall covering the entire south wall of the house and then um, using that air to essentially heat the entire house and we did some kind of basic preliminary calculations and thought it might work out but like i said with hydrogen coming into the picture and then we started discussing a radiant system uh, we kind of moved away from that um, and then i guess sorry the solutions are just keep keep popping into my head but we also discussed using like a smaller tron wall just to heat the mechanical room. Um, but like Kyle mentioned earlier, now we're looking at using the waste heat from the electric green hydrogen system. Um, but other than that, that was the one passive solar um, technology we kind of looked into. We do have a pretty good south facing aspect, though, I will add. Yeah, so in, in terms of, of, you know, just passive solar design, um, you know, we certainly take key elements of that. So 
Um, you know, we're, we're very particular. And one thing we certainly did was, you know, tried to decrease the amount of windows that we have since that's just going to be a, a main source of, of heat loss. So we've very limited the window to wall ratio on the north side. Our overall window to wall ratio is at like 18%, I think, um, trying to maximize the windows that we can in our shading that we can um, on the south side, just to trying to optimize passive heat gain um, during the winter, but minimizing it during the summer. So we do have those principles in the house, um, but again, just with it being so so small you know people ask us all the time well are you doing passive house standards and i tell well, we just we really don't have like the footprint to be able to do some of these super super insulated homes that they have and so we try and you know we we try and bring in some of the principles where we can where we can but just just the nature of the house we we, we aren't able to do like passive house standard fully yeah um so obviously this all needs to be funded um how how does the funding work to to do this project yeah so we've gotten a good amount of funding from the university um ten thousand dollars from the architectural engineering department and then two thousand dollars from the electrical engineering department um a big source of our funding will actually come from department of energy itself so if we are one of the teams who proceeds through the first round of contests, which is essentially after the design phase of the entire project, um, we'll get a $50,000 gift from DOE. So that's a pretty big chunk we rely on. We're also applying to another funding within the College of Engineering at CU called the Engineering Excellence Fund. Um, we're, expect we're expecting a good amount of funding from them as well. And then aside from that, we just try to kind of rouse up any sponsors we can find. And we also have a crowdfunding page that is also going to be pretty crucial here as we kind of reach the second half of our fundraising campaign. Um, we just look for donations from team members, family, friends, basically anyone who wants to support the cause here in Boulder. So we'll definitely put put the, that information in the show notes so people can find that if they're willing and interested in, in donating uh, to the cause. So does that money that you're raising, does that money go directly to the construction of the house uh, or is it, are there, is that funding other things? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So I guess I should back up a little bit and add that um, because we've partnered with Flatirons Habitat for Humanity and they already had a base case design, they're actually supplying that cost of the base case home. So any design modifications we make, we have to pay for, um, but we're not supplying the entire cost of the entire home. We're basically doing any additions that we bring to the project. Um, and as far as fundraising money, that will predominantly all go towards construction or procurement for construction um, with a few, maybe like $2,000 going to just team expenses, such as transportation to competition events and other stuff like that. But almost all of it will be going towards construction yeah so habitat might contribute the the base lumber package and then anything you need beyond that base you would have to supply and then probably similarly with mechanicals they'd give you at least the dollar amount for a base furnace that they might use and since you're using something different you might have to make up the difference is that kind of how it works that yeah that that's right. And so like, for example, you know, one of the big changes we made was, was really increasing the envelope thickness. So, um, you know, Habitat original plan was, was to have a, you know, a pretty standard two by six wall. So they're planning on that, but you know, now that we're adding an interior stud wall, increased insulation, those are the types of expenses, um, yeah. that we'll be covering same with like the high performance windows, you know, they were using a, a pretty standard window configuration. Um, and so like those those types of changes and or additions is is what we'll we'll be covering is one of the requirements to really track the the cost so that you can figure out uh the cost differential between for example ha habitat standard practice and what you're bringing to the table yeah definitely so one of our biggest goals actually is to kind of 
create a design that can be replicated both within Boulder um, and the broader affordable housing market, but more specifically within the Ponderosa neighborhood. So we're going to be, I think, the second home to go in out of eventually what will be 63, I think. Um, and we're really trying to show that, hey, here's a design that Habitat can take forward for the rest of this project. And hopefully we'll see it pop up a few more times in the same neighborhood. So getting back to your question, affordability is definitely super important in that sense, um, yeah. just because this is affordable housing and this is kind of a unique home in the development in that um, we're bringing a lot of new technologies, um, new modifications, but along with that comes costs. So we're, we'll definitely be keeping track of that and making sure that this house remains affordable. Yeah. And I think Habitat does a pretty good uh, job of not just thinking about first cost, but also cost of ownership and uh, opportunity costs and all those things that are, are important to think about as well. Yeah. And we certainly can't express enough how, how great of mentors we've had through Flatirons Habitat for Humanity and all the time that they've provided to us in terms of feedback and guidance. Um, and, and, and cause they do, especially this branch here, like they do a, a pretty dang good job already in terms of energy efficiency with, with their designs. Um, and so one of the things that we're definitely looking to, to do because we're making some changes, for example, to the envelope and the mechanical systems to be able to try and really have a true comparison in terms of like overall life cycle cost. So we'll have energy monitoring in this home. We'll have um, sensors in this home so that we can track the data for this house and then compare it to, say, say if Habitat, the next house they build, is more of their base case design. We can start to get a good comparison between the two and really you know, come to a conclusion of, okay, did the, did the design changes we made, did it have a payout? And, and how long was that, that payback? Yeah. Um, so where are you in the actual design process at this point? Yeah, so we're, like I said a little bit earlier, we're about seven months into the design process. Um, and it feels like we're nearing the end, but who knows what edges we'll have to polish off before we're officially done. Um, currently, our timeline is um, we're trying to have our construction documents finalized and submitted for final approval by March 29th. And then after that, our most significant deadline is, or goal is June 1st, um, we wanna start building. And are a number of the team members going to be hanging around during the summer and doing a lot of the building? We think so, yeah. I think about 10 of us um, will be hanging around and not maybe not full-time, but definitely a really good amount of time spent on the site, actually building the home, working with volunteers. Um, I know, I think Kyle and me are both planning on sticking around and being there almost all the time. Um, when is judging? And I guess there's two phases of the judging. So the design judging starts when? Yeah, so for the design judging, we actually travel down to Golden and give a presentation on just kind of our design in its totality. And so we'll get judged then, and that happens mid-April. Um, so that's when that contest is, we'll head down to Golden for that. And then as far as judging of the home, that'll happen next March and April, I believe. So we'll actually have an event with the community where we'll open up the home. People can come tour it, um, look at our design process, see how construction was carried out, um, kind of view the whole timeline of the project when the house is finally complete. So that, that'll be happening, I think, next March, I believe. That's March of 2023. And that that's the rough time frame you believe the house will be complete by next March? Yeah, so it, it'll definitely be complete by next March. Um, as far as when it'll be completed, um, we're, we're kind of trying to nail that down right now. Um, as many people know in construction, it's, it's tough to get a solid estimate sometimes, but... Um, We'll be building all summer and into the fall. So yeah, def at least by next February is the best answer I can give. And are you guys running the construction schedule or is Habitat doing that? 
So Habitat's uh, providing site managers for us and there'll be two of them. So we'll be working with them throughout the summer. And then they're also handling uh, the volunteers that they'll be getting. And anyone who wants to volunteer on our behalf can also volunteer and they'll kind of fit right in with the Habitat process. Um, and they'll go through the same safety briefings that all the other volunteers do. Um, so yeah, yeah, we're lucky to have site managers that'll be helping us with all that. How how do um, a lot of the other teams handle that? Do you do you know at all? Do most of them work with a habitat or some have to bring on a builder partner? Um, that's a good question. Uh, Kyle might have a better answer than I have, but I know if you don't have site managers, one of the co-leads has to get OSHA certification, I believe. Um, but yeah, I'm not. Too, that's an interesting question, actually. Yeah, I can maybe provide a little more insight. So it it's certainly a big challenge, right? Like the competition is asking a bunch of students to try and build a house. Um, so I know, I guess, looking at what the team did last year at CU Boulder, and I say last year's, I guess that was in 2020, um, they did have, or I don't know if it was volunteered or if they paid um, basically like a building consultant to help them through the construction process. They also had kind of a different model. Um, you know, they, they were building a house for um, a husband and wife who are super energy conscious and definitely have some building experience. So I think it was nice to have their guidance as well. Um, and then they also had a partnership, you know, as I mentioned briefly, they did like a prefabbed panelized wall system. Mm -hmm. So a system like that is great because, you know, you can go with a company that can help you construct and prefab all these wall panels. So that construction becomes super simple, you know, at least the big structural components. Right. And so then by the time you get the envelope and the structure all wrapped up and sealed in, you know, doing the interior, a lot of the tier work is a lot more volunteer friendly. Um, so I think to answer your question, every team is different. Um, I wouldn't say that partnering with Habitat is like a super common thing throughout the competition. It's certainly been done before. Um, you know, we were just super blessed and happy that this partnership came about because, yeah, for us, when it comes to the construction side, you know, they're, they're just great mentors to have. They've got the experience, they've got the tools, they've got the insurance. So it takes a lot of, you know, some of the stress in terms of actually building off of us because we have a, a great resource like that. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's very true. Great, great resource. And they do a great job uh, with things. Um, my last question I think is with regards to the other details, uh, drainage planes and vented rain screens and cladding and um, air barriers and all, all those things. Is that uh, up to you in the design process or are you getting some mentoring on that? Yeah, so um, the overall look, so uh, Boulder has fairly specific design guidelines that we need to follow in terms of how the exterior aesthetics of the house has to look. Um, as long as we meet those guidelines for the aesthetics, um, yeah, all the, the systems were allowed to modify. So we've been consulting a lot with, you know, whoever we can really reach out to with folks that, you know, I kind of deem as building science consultants or experts. Um, you know, one of the main ones being 475 Building Supply. Um, so we have a contact, local contact here. I'll give a shout out to, to Johnny Resvani who's been instrumental in helping us get the, the envelope details together. We've also been able to reach out um, to the builder, uh, Killian, who built um, a habitat house out in Gunnison, Colorado, really focusing on low carbon and um, high energy efficiency. Um, and then also, you know, folks at Mitsubishi and, um, and elsewhere. So yeah, we, we reach out and, and try and get knowledge from whoever we can. Um, I guess I'll give another shout out to EMU as well, um, passive house in, uh, trainers and, and consultants. So yeah, it, we kind of just piece together and um, we, 
we really appreciate all the support. Like I said, we, we can't say enough at, at how many people have contributed to this project. Terrific. Well, I really appreciate your time uh, to help educate us about the uh, solar decathlon process. It's, uh, it is a bit of a daunting process and it seems like you guys are really excelling uh, leading your team. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for having us, Robbie. This was a lot of fun. Well, I'm glad. And and remember, everyone, that you can go to the show notes and, and find out more information. And if you'd like to donate, uh, you can go there as well to find out that information. So thanks again, guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of BuildCast, brought to you by Build Tank Inc., see show notes and learn more about our guests and other episodes, visit the BuildCast page of our website at www.btankinc.com. Thank you, Ben Sound, for our music and to Ashley Owen for editing it. And you, for your encouragement and guidance in the creation of BuildCast. You can listen to BuildCast on Anchor, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite platform. If you enjoyed our show and are willing, please take a moment to subscribe and review BuildCast which will help others find it more easily. Thanks again for listening, and please let us know who you would like to hear next and if you have any suggestions to make BuildCast better. Until next time, be safe and continue to think 0 to 360.